The Start On Demand. On demand. Halifax is banning drive throughs At least, that would be the headline if a city councillor there gets his way. Denver is calling its geese population and feeding it to the hungry. What sort of stuff have you saved up for in your life, either as a kid or using points as an adult? A Saskatoon man recently paid for an $800 canoe with Canadian tire money. We'll find out exactly what is the Manitoba Tomorrow Project. And we've got some tips on traveling with your dog and how to make it a possum and positive experience. I'm Brett McGarry alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb on vacation. We are Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. And this is the Thursday, July 4th podcast for The Start. Mackling and McGarry, Mackling, how often do you use a drive-thru? There's one answer applicable here only, and that is too often. Every day for a steep tea in the morning? Every day for a steep tea in the morning. You get a muffin too? Uh, yes, muffin is my friend, if you know what I'm saying. Raisin okay. brand muffin. Well, how about you? Every day for a coffee? Or as I would like to do, every day for two sausage and egg English muffin sandwiches. And Why a minim- two? And Just a mi- have one! <laughs> oh, and a minimum of two hash browns, maybe a little breakfast burrito in there too. I only do that every so often, but if I did that every day, I'd be delighted, but also much larger. Well, I'm getting sidetracked by my hunger. Imagine losing those drive throughs Come on. Halifax City Council is proposing... That city do just that. Richard Zorowski is the councillor. He's big on environmental issues, and he asked for a staff report on the feasibility of eliminating drive throughs throughout Halifax for an easy solution to lower CO2 emissions in the city. That report's now going to head to the Environment and Sustainability Committee. Yesterday, Jeff Courier, who's on from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. weekdays on 680 CJOB, discussed this just after the 11 a.m. news with Global's Alexander Kwan, who says the councillor did not get the response he was expecting. And he received uh, uh, quite a bit of pushback uh, from the public and from other councillors as well. Yeah, I'll bet he did. Is there even the slightest chance that this is going to gain any traction? I don't think so. The staff report has concluded that it's, it's, uh, you know, it's not necessarily feasible to do it. Halifax is growing, uh, and so more uh, drive-thrus can be constructed. But there's a rule currently in the books for, for bylaw and for planning reasons no more uh, drive throughs can be constructed on the main area of Halifax, purely just for space reasons. But to spread it throughout the rest of Halifax, I think that would be a tough sell for everybody on council. Well, if you're talking about kind of a main throughway or a busy street, then there's there's always the risk of traffic, traffic backing up right onto that street, right? I mean, that's a legit argument, isn't it? Yeah, that is that is the argument about specifically about the, the core of Halifax. That's uh, that's the argument, and that's the reasoning for the the ban of not having any more construction uh, of drive-throughs. But it wouldn't any any legislation uh, if it was passed by the city wouldn't be able to eliminate drive-throughs entirely. Any pre-existing ones would have to stay. Yeah, this is not unusual. I know a lot of people are snickering at this. Minneapolis is looking at this very same thing right now, banning any future drive-throughs. Jeff spoke to one of our listeners about this. Here's what Roger had to say. I guess a little bit of common sense prevails. I when I go to uh, go to, when I see a drive-through and if it's a huge lineup, I'll just park the car and go inside. 
Now, if the lineup's not very big, like say just a couple cars, yeah, I'll go through a drive-through. A text message at 204-780-6868 from Eve. I would rather end complicated orders at the drive-thru. They should have a limited menu that way. If you have a complicated order, you walk in. Another person saying, you know, one of the things I love about the drive-thru, the anonymity, the no need to put on makeup, wear PJs if you want. Honestly, sometimes if I would have to go inside, I wouldn't because I wouldn't want to be seen looking unkempt or unready. Vanity, I guess, but I bet a lot of people feel the same way. A lot of times they're getting you to pull over. And like from the drive-thru to wait in a parking spot. Anytime I go through A&W to get my girlfriend a Beyond Meat burger, we have to wait like 10 minutes. So I almost wonder why am I in the drive-thru? I'll just go in. The face of wireless communication in our province changed when Bell took over MTS several years ago. Many customers enjoyed unlimited data within Manitoba. Jeff Braun tells me he has unlimited data across Canada because of his previous relationship with MTS. Wow. Reality set in with many of those customers were either taken uh, that were taken over by Bell MTS, had that privilege removed, or were moved to tell us. Those national carriers did not offer unlimited data packages until now, sort of. What do you think of the data plans in Canada? Well, they're the most expensive in the world, right? Unlimited data plans are common in other countries. Tourists are baffled. Canada is so far behind. I actually I come from Scotland, and in Scotland most of the phone contracts are unlimited data. I've actually kept my other um, cell phone provider because it it um, does have unlimited in Canada and the U.S. Now Canada is slowly catching up. Rogers becoming the first of the big three providers to offer an unlimited data package. Increasingly customers have been uh, telling us that uh, data overage and uh, worry-free wireless is really critical to their ability to use wireless services. Of course, there's a catch with the Rogers plan. After 10 gigabytes of high-speed data, customers will be shifted to the slow lane. Unlimited surfing, but at reduced speeds. Jeff wanted me to uh, correct myself Mm. across Manitoba. That was Jordan Armstrong of Global News. A data cap and a shift to lower speed doesn't sound like true unlimited service to us. Amy Morrison, associate professor, teaches and does research around technology and associated topics at Waterloo University. She joins us this morning to weigh in. Good morning, Amy. Good morning. Does this sound like unlimited data to you? Uh, What a mess. (laughs) Since I was emailing with you guys yesterday, I've been all over the internet trying to figure out how these plans work. And this is part of the challenge with wireless in Canada is that there are so many different web pages you can consult to try to figure out what the plans are, but you can't really get details unless you log into your own service provider to figure out what you might be entitled to. And 92% of us ultimately are served by the big three telcos or their spin-off brands. And when you get down to the bottom of it, the plans are almost all exactly 
the same, and you always seem somehow to get a great deal that costs you more money <laughs> than the deal you had before and somehow doesn't give you what you were expecting to get. That's that's cell phones in Canada, I think. Well, why is Canada so far behind? We heard in that report that uh, other parts in the world, the unlimited data is commonplace. And uh, I mean, just, just working here over the years, I remember working with Charles Adler. We got a guy in his cell phone. We talked to him in South Africa and his line was clear as a bell. But if I try to call somebody in a neighborhood in Winnipeg with a lot of trees, there's a likelihood that the call is going to drop. Oh, I know. It's terrible. So... Um, it's often said that in, in Canada, our fees are higher because the country is so very geographically large and yet so sparsely populated. But in fact, Canadian uh, cell phone service covers about 25% of Canada's land mass. And that's where about um, 92 to 95% of all Canadians live. So it can't be that they're covering this huge geographic area. It's more likely that it's because of the way our telecommunications regulations are set up and the way our market works is that Canada has a wireless market about the same size as the wireless market in the state of California, right? (laughs) Um, U.S. cell phone plans, for example, cover the entire nation. So they are covering, you know, a population base roughly 10 times the size of the population base that we have. And so they may be better able to offer these great deals, except then you can think about how Canada's wireless services extract the most profits of any wireless industry in the world, pretty much, right? So you might say, oh, you know, the U.S. is a bigger market, so they're going to get better deals, except the profit margins are lower in the U.S. And the profit margins in Canada for the big three, um, which covers 92% of all cell phone plans in Canada, um, are much, much higher (laughs) than in other countries. So it's not hard to kind of conclude that possibly we are being gouged in in a triopoly where the three companies always seem to have almost exactly the same deal, right? All yeah. the time. Yeah, and it, it certainly happens uh, with gasoline and with uh, Coke and Pepsi always seem to be on sale at the same time. But that's another road for us to travel a different time, Amy. But this whole idea of offering you unlimited and not putting that in in quotation marks sort of bothers me because uh, we heard in that story that one of the plans being offered by one of the big three includes shifting you from 4G uh, to LTE once yeah. you reach a thir- certain threshold. It just feels cer- very indes- disingenuous to market it as unlimited. Well, that's actually how the American plans work as well, is that you hit a certain data threshold. And so the baseline data threshold for these new plans in Canada is 10 gigabytes uh, per month. Now, according to some market research I was looking at, the average Canadian, so across all users, um, goes through about 2 gigabytes of data per month. Um, And so even getting to 10 would require us to watch a lot more YouTube in high definition while we're walking down the street. So once you hit 10 gigabytes here, you'll still be able to um, use the internet. You will still be able to look at your Instagram infinite scroll of images, but it might uh, judder a little bit as you go. Um, you'd probably still be able to watch streaming video, but probably not in, in high definition. And so in the U.S., these types of plans, the base plan tends to be throttled um, that is to say, artificially slowed down at about 20 to 22 
gigabytes, so we're still getting a slightly reduced um, uh, uh, speed and data cap than they would get in the U.S., but it's, um, it's never truly an unlimited uh, plan. It's always unlimited up to some arbitrary but fairly high number, and then after that, slightly slower than that. Do we know what it actually costs these companies to provide us with data? Like anybody that has a, has experienced a data overage has oh, paid the price when they get and gotten that sticker shock when they get their bill, hundreds of dollars over the, the, the cost of what you're used to paying. But do we know what it actually costs the providers to give us that service? Well, almost nothing, right? <laughs> data, data is not a... Um, a container of milk, you know, like there's nothing really moving through the tubes. What costs money here is um, the infrastructure required to um, produce the speed, right? Uh, And so it's the same thing with having high-speed internet in your house. It's normally the last mile that's the most expensive, but all of that tends to be, you know, sort of wired from the box um, into your house. And so um, telcos in Canada will make noises about the huge geographic area which they have to cover sort of in, in cell phone towers and, and processing um, and all the infrastructure required to make sure that everyone can use um, this high-speed uh, internet on their phones. Um, but at a certain point, we've, we've hit almost maximum penetration of this technology in Canada. So almost everybody in Canada has a cell phone and uses this type of thing where it's something at like 80 penetration here. So the number of users um, really doesn't have too much farther to go up, but the amount of data we use may at some point put a strain on the infrastructure that's there. Um, We're not there yet. All all I would like is to be able to be speaking to my buddy, traveling down the Trans-Canada Highway and just not have his call drop seven times. (laughs) You would think of all the places you could get quality service. It would be along the Trans-Canada Highway, coast to coast. But uh, not so, Amy. Uh, I guess we'll leave it there for now and uh, maybe ask the CRTC to uh, maybe do their job a little bit better here. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that the telcos have spent a long time extracting almost obscene amounts of profits out of their cell phone plans, and there's really not been significant challenges to that that type of monopoly practice there. So, yeah, we could use the help. Amy Morrison, Associate Professor, teaches and does research around technology at Waterloo University, joining us live on 680 CJOB. Amy, a pleasure as always. Thank you. Thank you. And she's bang on when she talks about how it's so complicated trying to get the information from the various uh, carriers. When I had to get a new phone and wanted to switch providers, I'm looking at all three of them, and I came to the same conclusion. Like, so this is basically the same price, but they've just they just lump things together in different ways to try to baffle you and to just. To the point where you just sort of throw your hands in the air and say, just sign me up, whatever. And the most basic things, too, right? Uh, Voicemail uh, with three messages or unlimited voicemail. And it goes from three to nine dollars. And the caller ID, and you can't get the caller ID unless you have this or that. And uh, it's so convoluted. Uh, Here's a great text message to sum this up. Sorry, when I go to rent a car and it says unlimited kilometers, doesn't mean after 200 kilometers is not unlimited. Makes me sad. To see these companies take our hard-earned money. Mackling and McGarry McNabb back next week. Story a few days ago out of Saskatoon. What happened, Greg? <laughs> 
Thomas Turfloth, uh, I'm going to go with that pronunciation of his last name, uh, walked into a Canadian Tire in Saskatoon with a briefcase full of Canadian Tire money and bought a canoe. And most of the money was in 10 cent Canadian Tire bills. So <laughs> it was like paying a ransom, I guess. And uh, yeah, so it got us thinking about what have you, you know, what have you ever saved up for, whether it was with points, money, something that you decided I wanted, but I, you know, I'm going to put a little bit aside every month or over the years to acquire. Jeff Braun, are you a saver? No, I'm not. I don't think I've honestly don't think I've ever done that. I, I do have the scene card for when I go to the movies. Okay, at the Cineplex theaters. So you're a point collector. On that I am, yeah. And I always give them the scene card and put the card back in my wallet and immediately forget about it. And a couple of weeks ago, we were at the movies, and my girlfriend said, "How many points do you have?" I was like, "Oh, never checked." And I looked it up while we we're in line, and I have enough for six free movies. Or $80 worth of food at whatever restaurants they're associated with. So, so that's a couple of buckets of popcorn. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> how, do, how does that work? How many <laughs> points does it take to redeem? Because uh, I have 4,000 points on my scene. Yeah, you card. got enough. It's only like 1,200 for a free movie. So you got like three free movies. Yeah, because I wanted to redeem them. Uh, but I, I didn't have the option when I was buying a ticket the other day. I was like, oh, I probably have enough scene points. But it didn't prompt me to redeem oh, really? the points. Hmm. So I probably, I just did something wrong. But that's good to know. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Kelly? Um, uh, like we we save points on our credit card for flying. We like to go to Mexico every winter, so uh, it certainly helps with that. Uh, I I'm trying to think of something that I saved up a long, long time for, and and nothing really immediately comes to mind. Certainly, I, I can't compete with the guy in Saskatoon in <laughs> a briefcase full of one Canadian of our listeners money. can. Yeah, no, no doubt. Yeah. Now, it wasn't didn't there used to be an expiry date on on Canadian Tire money? You had to use it by um, a certain time, or or has it always been uh, no, evergreen, th- so to yeah, speak? Yeah, I think it's evergreen. One of our listeners has an incredible amount of Canadian Tire money. Yeah, and this listener says, "I keep hearing about the canoe for eight hundred, and I chuckle. I have over three thousand dollars." In Canadian Tire Money. <laughs> that is crazy. I asked... You're going to buy the company one day or I something. I said, how long have you been saving? And this person says simply, since day one. <laughs> when was what day, is day one? one? <laughs> <laughs> like, are we going back to Adam and Eve here? <laughs> yeah. But that's insane. Good. That's, that's dedication to be able to hang on to that money. Because that's... If the $800 filled up briefcase... Would uh would three thousand fill like a suitcase or a trunk? You might need like a hockey duffel bag or something like that yeah, to carry that. Have to, in. have to hire one of those Garter World or Brinks. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I always have tons of respect. I know some people who pay for almost everything in points, whether it's air miles or whether it's uh, as Kelly, you talked about there, your travel loyalty rewards on yeah. credit cards. I just don't have the patience to maintain. All of that, and because you then have to do research as well, like oh, I got to go to Safeway on Tuesday, July, whatever, uh, to get double air miles on toilet paper. Like I just, I don't have the time for that. So I salute those who do. I do as well. You can save a ton of money and get lots, lots of stuff for free. Yeah, there's lots of reward uh, programs for sure. Are you involved in any of those at all, Forche? Have you ever saved up for anything? Well, saved up like when I was a kid. You know, I saved up my like uh, allowances and. My to buy what? Birthday checks to buy my first BMX. Nice. First BMX bike. Uh, what color was it? It was blue. A Haro F3. It was. Was it a handbrake or a footbrake? Oh, it was. It was a handbrake. Okay. Was, yeah. I had the footbrake on my BMX. Oh, yeah, but that must have been a very proud day for you. That was. And then when I bought my first car, because I bust my butt when I was uh, in high school, I'd 
just working working at a pizza place and uh, saved up my cash. My down payment was eight grand. So, yeah. What kind of car? Well, that was my uh, little Cobalt. The Cobalt? Uh, yeah, oh, the 2009 wow. Cobalt. You got yourself a nice car, not some beater. Yeah, and I bought it two weeks after I got my license. So. Good for you, Jeff. Yeah. Well, I should take some financial advice from Jeff Forche. Yeah, I you don't want to do that. Didn't the bike thing, isn't that your story? Yeah, I, I started uh, Paper Root and Brandon when I was in grade four. And I would deliver papers every Wednesday, the Brandon Shopper. And it was 356 papers that I would deliver every Wednesday. And then the- What? Yeah, That's a lot of papers. That's a lot of papers from 22nd Street to 26th Street, south of <laughs> Victoria Avenue. How many houses had vicious dogs? Uh, no vicious dogs, <laughs> but uh, the, the bane of my existence was the Sears catalog, which would come out twice oh. a year. And those are like four inches thick. Not everybody got those, but that was always a pain in the neck. And my paychecks, I think, used to be around $10, $11, but I saved up for my very first Five speed. My mom and dad went halfers with me, and I remember going to the Royal Bank on 18th Street in Brandon to take out the $55 I needed to pay for <laughs> half of my bike from, from Sears. That's amazing. Let us know your stories at 204-780-6868. Mike says, do points earned at home count? Cook supper? Points. Clean the bathroom? Points. Not sure when I get to redeem them, but I'm thinking about it. They're not really points then, Mike, if you can't redeem them. The Winnipeg Humane Society and the Cinnamon Park Zoo don't see eye to eye when it comes to the zoo's stingray exhibit. Last week, three rays died as a result of aggressive mating behaviors, and the display was temporarily shut down. Humane Society wants the exhibit to be permanently closed. Yesterday on Hal Anderson Afternoon's guest host, Kathy Kennedy, a.k.a. KK, spoke to the CEO of the Winnipeg Humane Society, Javier Schwersensky. Here's some of that conversation. You wrote a very long and a very detailed and a very explained blog post today about why you think it is that the Assiniboine Park Zoo should be shuttering the Stingray exhibit. Tell us why. Well, first of all, we consider ourselves to be friends of the zoo, and the zoo does phenomenal work. And the people working there are, uh, you know, utmost professionals, and we have a lot of respect. Uh, but the uh, these stingrays um, are just suffering, uh, essentially being transported in tanks and then uh, having to be, uh, you know, touched by uh, thousands of hands. Uh, they're wildlife, and wildlife do not like interaction with with humans. And when um, we became aware that uh, several of the stingrays have died, uh, which is uh, 10% of the stingrays that they received, and I did some research um, on the assertion that stingrays are okay being touched with humans, which uh, really is not the case uh, based on the majority of uh, what we know about uh, stingrays. Uh, it came very clear that we need to ask our friends of the zoo to please close the, the exhibit uh, because the welfare of the stingrays are at risk. Now, the one of the things he goes on to explain is these animals swim over 2,000 kilometers a year. Mm-hmm. And so to imagine them in captivity, they're just their movement is restricted and they're being bombarded by all these people touching them. So they're under extreme duress. Uh, I w- visited, the, we mentioned this recently, McNabb had a similar experience. There's an excursion in the Cayman Islands that we did when we were on a cruise, uh, me and uh, some people about uh, close to 10 years ago, where they took us way out 
into onto a sandbar in the ocean where there were stingrays hanging around, and you could touch them then, but these stingrays kind of came and went. Sure. And they knew that people were there, and they still would come hang out there. And I we got to pick them up, and I had one on my back, and it was kind of a neat experience, but I... I'm no expert. I have no idea if they if they enjoyed themselves. They weren't attacking us, uh, so I would imagine they're just cool with it now. But uh, this is this particular thing at the zoo is a little bit different than that. Yeah, it is a little bit different. And one of the assertions uh, that Javier made uh, was uh, answered by Dr. Enright, Dr. Chris Enright at the Cinnaboy Zoo and the Cinnaboy Park Conservancy. I'll uh, just press this here for you, Brett. I- I think there's a misunderstanding. This exhibit is not a traveling exhibit. This is an exhibit that we will have for at least one or two years. Uh, and we are the custodians, the owners of these animals. Yeah, Dr. Enright and Laura Kabak spoke with Richard and Julie yesterday afternoon on the news and uh, asked, Richard and Julie asked, you know, does this exhibit, in their opinion, endanger the animals? There, there's nothing to suggest that these stingrays are in danger because of the exhibit. We absolutely care about the welfare of every animal in our, in our care, and we watch that welfare closely, whether that be a butterfly, a mouse, or a stingray. So, Laura Kabak, what's the response formally to the Humane Society's call? We respect the work that the Winnipeg Humane Society does in our community, but we don't agree with their position regarding the stingray beach exhibit or the role of modern zoos. Um, as an accredited member of the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, we are held to very, very high standards for animal welfare. We uh, provide important uh, services in terms of education, research, and conservation. And the uh, 400,000 visitors that come to our zoo every year um, support what we do. Now, the exhibit has been closed, or shall I say, had been closed. And in the meantime, there have been changes made to the exhibit and how the animals are treated itself. It will not close permanently. Uh, the measures we have taken to address the identified issues of the raised natural mating behavior resulting in injuries, uh, we have already taken steps to address that situation with lowering the temperature to a winter temperature range, changing the daylight hours, and actually separating the males from the females. And it will reopen when? The Stingray uh, Beach did open yesterday. So the exhibit is reopened following that concern with the death of several animals and uh, the changes that were made. So it looks like we have an old-fashioned standoff here, Brett McGarry, between the Assiniboine Park Zoo and the Conservancy and the Humane Society. Typically, we associate them as as allies in most situations, certainly not in this one. Yeah, and the zoo, uh, the, the Humane Society, Javier, once again saying, as he pointed out at the beginning, look, we have a lot of respect for what they do over at, at the zoo. Uh, we would just like, they say that zoos are changing. They're not so much a showcase. It's not so much about entertainment. It's about preservation, particularly for species that are endangered. And they say they feel like it's more of a, it's a, they compared to, compared it to like a circus. You know, a circus is don't use animals anymore. And if there was a circus that came through, the city with animals, then the Humane Society would have a problem with that as well. So you can weigh in, 204-780-6868. Yeah, I'm on the fence as it when it comes to, to zoos and aquariums. I grew up going to the Vancouver Aquarium. I've probably mentioned this on air in the past. And Scanna, the killer whale. Uh, even when I was a kid, I can remember them talking about her dorsal fin and the fact that it was sort of 
had flopped over. In nature, that certainly doesn't happen. They don't really need to use it in captivity. But they even started alluding many, many years ago about to, you know, the emotional state of these animals. And if you've seen uh, Blackfish, the CNN production uh, about what happens at SeaWorld and the changes at SeaWorld over the years and, and orcas that have turned on their trainers, uh, it's difficult to endorse the idea of keeping those animals in, captiv- uh, in captivity. But I know for myself, from seeing those beautiful animals, you have a greater appreciation and you do want to make sure their natural habitat is protected and so that's that's where the saw-off is for me. I, I'm not exactly sure where the line ought to be. I just firmly believe that by interacting with those animals as closely as possible, I think a lot of people care about their well-being in a broader sense based on that experience. So the stingrays is a problem in Winnipeg. Well, what's the problem in Denver? Well, park officials in the Colorado capital are trying to manage their Canada geese population by putting them, this is tough to read, on the menu for the city's neediest families. Biologists rounded up hundreds of Canada geese early on, get this, July 1st, Mm. mm, Canada Day, as part of a newly authorized measure to curb the number of geese in the city. Here's a report from Fox News Denver affiliate KDVR. The Parks and Rec director says it is their number one complaint across the board. The geese and the goose poop that is left behind thousands of pounds every year that they have to clean up. Not only is it a mess, but it's also a health concern. A day at Washington Park in Denver is filled with running, boating, biking, and birds. Have I ever seen the geese? (laughs) Belinda Bagley has lived across the street for years. The Canada geese have been there just as long. I've seen them multiply greatly. Denver Parks and Rec says the goose management plan in place now, including use of a man-made predator known as the goosenator, is failing. Executive Director Scott Gilmore says the numbers are exploding. It had gotten to the point where the parks were just being are, are almost unenjoyable for a lot of people. So that is why we moved forward with this this plan. Working with the USDA, they are taking a more aggressive approach known as culling, which means some of the geese will be rounded up and used for food. And they are taking them to a processor where they're processed and they are donating them to needy families. Not everyone who enjoys the park agrees. I think supporting underprivileged people is noble. Killing wild geese to feed them sounds ridiculous. Howard Turk says having the geese around is part of the joy. This is a park. People want to be in nature and play. Why kill them? While others, like Bagley, say it's about balance. What a better thing to do with the geese than feed hungry people. I mean, there's too many geese, too many hungry people, so it works out. The director says this is a process that will be implemented across all Denver City parks, and he wanted to be clear they're not removing all of the geese because they are still a protected bird. That's why the USDA has to be involved. They're limited to 2,200 across the state. In Denver, Karen Morfitt covering Colorado First. I am, uh, I don't know what to, to make of this or where I, where I stand on this. I know that geese annoy me as, <laughs> because I, wherever I encounter geese, it's when I'm golfing. Mm-hmm. And they hiss at me when I hit my ball in their vicinity uh, because I happen to be going near their young. 
And uh, some of the, uh, well, one of them took a run at me, but that's kind of because I provoked it. Uh, that's quite entertaining video. Yeah. So it was my own doing, so I don't blame the goose for that. Um, and if there are that many that it's a problem, then I think, you know, because it, it, we've had situations in the city of Winnipeg before where they've had to move geese to a different location. But to kill them and then feed them, I yeah, I'm I need some time to digest this because if they have if if it's a solution to help feed hungry people, I think that's as they said in the clip, that's that's good, that's noble. But do you really want to do it this way? I don't know. I don't know what to make of this. I think, think there are a lot of people right now going. I wish we could do this in Winnipeg because there's a, there, there are a lot of Canada geese in places where we'd prefer them not to be, mm-hmm. and their poop is igno- obnoxious. Yep, and it is in the worst. It ends up in the worst places. Mm-hmm. There's one bicycle slash pedestrian path in our neighborhood is regularly covered in goose poop and with this lack of rain that we've been having usually the rain you know does a pretty good job at washing it away from time to time but it's just building up building up and yeah i think there'd be a lot of people in this city who would say um can we hire that guy from denver to come up here for a couple weeks Right now, we want to tell you about the Manitoba Tomorrow Project and how you can make an impact by taking part in this. And we're joined live on 680 CJOB in studio by Dr. Donna Turner, who is an epidemiologist with Cancer Care Manitoba and scientific lead on this project. Dr. Turner, welcome. Good morning to you. Good morning to you. What is the Manitoba Tomorrow Project? Well, the Manitoba Tomorrow Project is an exciting new health research study. It's a long-term health research study where we're aiming to learn much more about what causes cancer and other diseases by following a large group of Manitobans over a long period of time. Now, epidemiology, I think a lot of people hear that word and they might think, you're studying skin? No, it's not skin. What is epidemiology? Because it's a fascinating area of study. Absolutely. So, you know, and it's interesting that, that it, we, are, we are not studying epidermis, which is the, the skin, um, but epidemiology comes from the same word as epidemic. So what we're doing is we're actually thinking about disease as an epidemic. We look at the patterns of disease. In my case, I look at the patterns of cancer, and then we try to figure out what's going on. What, why is it that some people are getting cancer and some people aren't? Why are cancer rates rising? And to try to understand that, studies like the Tomorrow Project will really help us. And just like in a political poll, the larger the sample size, the more reliable or credible the results. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that we're really looking to do in the Manitoba Tomorrow Project. This is a a large study. We're aiming to recruit 10,000 Manitobans. That's a lot uh, over the next few years. And we're asking to be able to follow people up to 50 years. Wow. So why should I take part? Well, why you should take part, this is a real chance to sort of pay it forward, to give back. Uh, we can learn a lot from healthy Manitobans between the ages of 35 and 69. Uh, what we're asking uh, people to do is to uh, join us for a 45-minute uh, survey, participating in that, and then having a follow-up interview. But why people can, when in doing those things, what people are doing is giving us information that as we follow people forward, we can re- learn a lot about Manitobans. We can learn a lot about uh, 
the things that we do that we can control, like our lifestyle, the things that we can't control, like our environment and our genes, and what that means for the future generations in terms of what we can do to prevent cancer, find it e- earlier, and even treat it more effectively. I'll make an editorial comment. I won't drag you into it, but with regard to the state of healthcare in Manitoba, we know that the system is maxed and that we're making dramatic changes within the system. That's my comment. I'll put it aside. But this is our opportunity, right? We always want to say, well, what can I do? What changes, what differences can I make? This this can have an effect potentially on the healthcare system, how much it's taxed or how you're treated uh, long-term should you uh, come down with cancer or maybe even other ailments, correct? That's correct. So one of the things that we're really interested in with this study and with other studies, but definitely this one because it's so big, uh, is being able to understand much more about what we can do to prevent cancer. We can see that cancer is a disease that's associated with aging. um, And, you know, we can't stop people from aging. That is just one of the natural things that happens in life. But what we can do is help people to age more healthily. And a study like this will help us to understand and help people to to know what they can do to prevent disease. And yeah, in the long term, that'll be good for them as people and their families, but also has good impact for the healthcare system and society in general. Any risks associated with taking part in the study? Well, uh, no, there's no risk really in taking part in the study. It is a long-term commitment, although, of course, people, if they get uh, they get tired, they can know they can drop out at any time. Um, but, you know, really what we're looking at is um, what people will do is, is start with that baseline questionnaire, about 45 minutes. Uh, then they come in for a measurement uh, test. So we measure how tall you are. We measure uh, how heavy you are. Uh, we also do some really cool things. We have a machine that tells you about your body fatness and how that's distributed on your body. Um, and then we do uh, we do ask people if they would provide us with a blood sample and also a urine test. And that's a really interesting thing because that'll give us the biologics to understand what's going on inside you as well as what you tell us you're doing, but how that is interpreted in, in, in your cells. Um, and then we will be following people up every few years. We'll be doing another set of surveys, perhaps another a uh, couple of, of tests as we go along, either physical measures or blood tests as we go forward. So I mean, for some people, uh, the idea about, about um, having measurements is a little bit uh, odd, but I think most people, it's, it's pretty benign. I don't think most people would see that that's a risk. There's a ton of collaboration in the research, in medical research in particular. Uh, why a manitoba focus or Manitoba-centric a project like this? Is it modeled after projects that have been done elsewhere? Well, yeah, there's there's been a lot of projects that have been done like this. There's a large classic epidemiology study called the Framingham Study, which was done in the United States in the town of Framingham, Massachusetts, which looked at heart disease. Um, But we we know that the Women's Health Study uh, in the U.S. uh, is another large study. Um, But what we know is is that uh, Manitobans are unique. Uh, We think that who we are as a population and what our exposures might be are something that, that we would like to know about and to understand. This project is also part of a larger pan-Canadian project, the Canadian uh, um, Partnership for Tomorrow project. And there are cohorts like this across Canada, each run in different regions. So BC, Alberta, Ontario, Quebec, and Atlantic all have their own cohorts. And we all work together. So this is Manitoba's chance to contribute and to compare our results with what's happening in other populations across Canada. Our guest is Dr. Donna Turner. She is epidemiologist with Cancer Care Manitoba and scientific lead on the Manitoba Tomorrow Project. And if someone listening right now were to join the project, will it cost them anything? 
No, it costs you nothing. And in fact, we will pay for your parking for coming to visit us at our centre. So the first thing uh, that uh, interested uh, folks should do is you can Google the Manitoba Tomorrow Project. Uh, you, there you can find our contact information on the Cancer Care Manitoba website. Um, you can phone us. We have a 1-800 number, uh, as well as you can just email us and say, hey, I'm interested in participating. And again, we're looking for people 35 to 69, no personal history of cancer. Uh, but you go on there, let our, our study staff know you're interested. They'll get back in touch with you um, and send you a questionnaire. And then we're off. Manitobans are so good at uh, donating uh, money, but also their time. We're very generous on both fronts. I, I suspect you won't have any difficulty getting the uh, getting the people that you want. Well, I certainly ho- we are certainly hoping that we've been going since the beginning of this year. We have about seven hundred people already, good but start. we are really still actively recruiting. Ten thousand is a big number. Where do we sign up? Uh, well, you, if you Google uh, for us the Manitoba Tomorrow Project, uh, that's the best way to sign up. Our uh, other, um, uh, you can go to our cancercare.mb.ca/mtp, which is where the Manitoba Tomorrow Project is. Um, but and then you can get directly onto where you sign up, or you can phone us at our tool, toll-free number one eight five 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 eight eight. 0658. And if people get involved, will they have to make any changes to their lifestyle at all? Like if they, let's say they don't take care of themselves or they eat too much, too much drive through. We've been talking about drive throughs this morning. Like, will they have to make any changes to qualify for this? No, this, in fact, that's actually the point of this whole study is to, to take, we want to learn from people where they're at in life. And as they, we want to walk with you through your journey in life and understand uh, your health uh, as you go. So in fact, we just want you to live your life and uh, we'd like to be a partner with you in that. No changes necessary. Just uh, allow us to walk with you. It's the Manitoba Tomorrow Project. Again, cancercare.mb.ca is a website to go to to get more information. You can also email mackling at cjob.com or brett at cjob.com and we can get you the link. Dr. Donna Turner, scientific lead on the Manitoba Tomorrow Project and as well, she is an epidemiologist with Cancer Care Manitoba. Thank you very much for coming to visit us, Dr. Turner. This is really exciting. Thank you very much. Mackling and McGarry with McNabb back next week. And if you are getting ready to travel with your pet, we want to tell you how to make it a positive experience. (laughs) When did you write that in your head? I stole it directly from this news release. (laughs) It is full on vacation time for many Canadians these days. And over the next seven or eight weeks time, we were lamenting or sharing with you earlier this morning, all the changes that'll be happening on our program from now until the end of August. Many people think taking a vacation means having to leave your four-legged friend at home. More and more Canadians are traveling with their fur babies Have you considered this and decided to leave your pet at home? Our next guest regularly travels with her pup, Luna. Travel Zoo's resident travel expert, Susan Cato, joins us to discuss traveling with your dog and to share some expert travel tips and tricks for making the process go smoothly. Susan, good morning to you. Good morning. What kind of dog is Luna? Uh, Black Lab. So she's on the the larger side of dogs that you travel with. No sort of popping her in a little uh, carrier bag and carrying her around secretly. Well, and Black Labs are full of energy and uh, they have a big booming bark too. So that's a bit of a handful. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the the reasons that TravelZoo did, you know, this project to look into it was because I, I love to travel with my dog, but it's not always easy to do. And we found that a lot of people are inquiring, like, 
is this hotel pet friendly? So uh, we decided it was time to really, uh, at Travel Zoo, now every single hotel we list, whether it's pet friendly or not, because you really need to know before you go. It's kind of what I would recommend to anyone who wants to travel with their dog. That's the last time you want a surprise is when you pull up somewhere, you know, after everybody's tired, your dog is restless. You don't want to be finding out then that your hotel doesn't accept any dogs over 30 pounds or um, that your campsite, uh, you know, is, is completely uh, out, outlaws dogs. Yeah, well, we've been talking about uh, the uh, big three telecommunication companies, Susan, this morning and the idea that uh, they're bringing out these unlimited, quote-unquote, unlimited data plans. But unlimited doesn't necessarily (laughs) mean unlimited, and sometimes pet-friendly does have an asterisk beside it. Yes, yeah, and and the biggest one, honestly, is the weight and size restriction. Um, And so that's one thing you want to check, even if your hotel says it's pet-friendly, you want to look at the fine print. and. And sometimes hotels charge fees. Often these are very reasonable and they make a lot of sense. Sometimes they're not. So again, you just want to know before you go. I think there are definitely places where it's worth paying that fee for the um, the peace of mind and knowing like you're not going to be sneaking your dog in and out of a room, which we definitely don't recommend. Um, so that's one thing you can do. And you can also just check the Travel Zoo website where we do have a number of really pet-friendly hotels um, on our list. And some places even really go in for like dog beds, bowls, and treats. Uh, this is a whole industry you can imagine in places like Los Angeles where your dog can basically be treated like royalty. Yeah, for sure. I've also seen uh, one qualification where you're not allowed to leave the dog in the room by itself. Yes. So again, this is something that you kind of want to plan for. But, you know, when you're traveling with your dog, you can have a really different experience in a city. Like instead of going to a museum, it's summer. Why not, you know, explore a city park? You can often take your dog to a, a, any a restaurant that has a sidewalk cafe, like if the dog is outside. In some places, you may be asked to keep your dog like kind of outside the fence on the sidewalk, but just get a window, you know, just get a seat by the fence and you're good there. You can usually, you know, find web, um, web communities of dog owners in that town that will kind of give you all the inside scoop on where you can go with your dog. But, you know, the the other great thing is the dog is the ultimate icebreaker. So if you are wondering, what can I do with my dog in this city? You know, just ask another dog owner and go to the dog park. Uh, There's no better way to meet people on vacation than by traveling with a dog. And one of the things that you've listed on your website here as well, uh, travelzoo.com, is that dogs are a well-being booster. What do you mean by that? Well, they actually improve your mental health. I mean, a study of pet owners found that 74% of pet owners said they had mental health improvements from pet ownership. And, you know, you're, you don't have to travel solo if you're traveling with your dog. It's it's the companionship uh, that people really um, love. And, you know, all the walking and the sightseeing is also a physical boost to your health as well. Like they get you out and about and that's as true when you're traveling, you know, and maybe you're eating rich foods and you're, you know, you're you're not in your regular exercise regime, but if you travel with your dog, you're going to be out there going for, you know, 3-4 walks a day and that will keep that'll that'll honestly probably become some of the most special memories of your trip. Well, and also ties into this uh, latest trend. I don't know if we call it that anymore, but this idea of living like a local, it really allows if it doesn't uh, in fact force you to do so. 
exactly. So, you know, I, I just make sure you, you know, if you are going to like a campsite or a park, I know in Manitoba, the provincial parks uh, allow dogs on leash, but you can't like just let your dog swim where people are swimming. There's like special spots where you have to take your dog to swim and things like that. So it's just a question of kind of being aware and being considerate because other people on vacation may not love, the, you know, they don't want a vacation with your dog. So you don't want your dog. Like if I let Luna loose at a campsite, she would go and eat everybody else's food. So, you know, I got to keep her on a leash and uh, know where she is all the time. If I'm planning to travel with a dog, say to the United States, do I have to bring any documentation with me? Yes, you want to bring documentation of the rabies shots and any other vaccines. And they do ask that, you know, the vaccines be given at least 30 days before you travel. Um, So, you know, have those documents printed out with you and also have an email copy just in case. And also just, you know, it's just kind of common sense things. Uh, Have the vaccine and ID tags on a collar, you know, and have a collar that has a tag with your phone number on it in case anything happens. But, yeah, at the, uh, the U.S., it's usually fairly easy to cross obviously through a land border versus a a flight, Um, but you do need to have those papers. Do you have any tips uh, specifically maybe with your experience with Luna on how to keep your dog sort of from driving you insane in case they start to get restless in the car? Well, I think uh, lots of exercise, well uh, well timed application of dog bones never hurts. And, uh, you know, if you can just make sure you stop at rest stops, which are usually pretty dog friendly, make sure you've got that leash on before you open the, the trunk of your car so your dog doesn't, you know, jump out of the trunk and start running around a parking lot. Um, and just, you know, keep a water, a little bowl. There's very easy to carry collapsible bowls you can get and water bottles so that, uh, you know, you can keep them hydrated on those trips. But I think it's a little like traveling with a little kid, maybe a little easier, but you do have to make the kind of maybe more frequent stops and uh, give everybody a chance to burn off some steam. Susan Caddo, Travel Zoo's resident travel expert. Thank you very much for joining us on this. We appreciate it. Thank you. Lovely talking to you. We will put a link to Travel Zoo's website and this article on our 680 CJOB Instagram story in moments. And that's a great idea. You know, I when I had a dog, never traveled with, with Dexter. And in hindsight, that would have been amazing. There's nothing like uh, being out with your buddy, right? Yeah. Dogs are... I mean, it's no good for us now that we're both uh, in committed relationships, but uh, dogs <laughs> ah. are really good wingmen. Oh, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I see where you're going with that. <laughs> in business at 818, we learned from Craig White with Endeavor Wealth Management that Hudson's Bay Company is looking to close more stores, and that could include some flagship stores. Now, he went on to tell us that the company is in the middle of restructuring. They're looking to take the company private amid some mounting shareholder pressure to improve their performance. And it looks like there are no sacred cows, as in any and all stores could be on the chopping block. As part of the closures, HBC could be looking to sell some of the real estate they own or could also be looking to renegotiate leases with landlords, which could present some interest real estate opportunities for others across the country. Now, do they own that location downtown? I believe they do. And so conversation for probably two decades as Hudson Bay has continually shrunk that store from 
uh, being seven, I think seven floors at one time, and and then an eighth floor in the basement, full of goods and services, and then and then they shrunk it to four floors, and I think now it's just two floors. And then uh, our good friends at Third and Bird uh, make use of the basement space a couple of times a year over a couple of different weekends. But that that store is certainly a shadow of its former self. And for a long time, the question has been, if the Bay ever did, and I won't call it the unthinkable, it might have been the unthinkable 20 years ago, certainly isn't now, and closed that store in in its entirety, what would be the best use of that space? I don't think we have to worry about that building going anywhere. I, I and I think, you know, the Eaton's building and, and the uh, goal to save that building was a little bit misguided in terms of its historical uh, significance. I don't think anyone can argue, but in terms of its architectural and its structural integrity, not there's zero comparison to the Eaton's building and the Bay building. They're night and day, and uh, you're not going to see uh, Winnipeg's next hockey arena go at the corner of Portage and Memorial. I, I don't think that's going to happen. But what would you like to see happen with that space? There's been discussion in the past about maybe turning into a condominiums. The University of Winnipeg campus continues to grow. Would that be a natural place for the University of Winnipeg to grow? And could they connect that either with an indoor link of some sort underground or skywalk and connect that to the main campus? There have been lots of discussions. I know when Manitoba Hydro was looking for their new headquarters and proposals for that, there were eight different proposals that were received. One of them was to demolish the parkade Uh, next to the bay and to build a new structure next to the bay and integrate it with the old building. What would you like to see there? Lots of ideas. We're never on short on ideas in this town. You can text us at 204-780-6868. And why don't we do this for take? Can we crack open the phone lines? Is that something we can do? We usually don't take calls on this program, but why don't we try that at 204-780-6868? Do you have any ideas on what they should do with the Hudson's Bay downtown? Should the company decide to close that store and you, you reference the the number of floors they used to have. Yeah, it was majestic. We would go there on Saturdays. Uh, I used to hate Saturdays when I was a kid and I was a brat <laughs> and, I'm, and I feel bad and I, I oh apologies to my parents uh, for being such a brat, but Saturdays were shopping days and they would drag us wherever in the city and whenever we went to the Bay, that was essentially our one stop because we would visit almost every floor. And as, as much as I was annoyed that we were shopping, I remember liking that store just because it was so massive and there was so much to see. And I kind of wish that they would just turn me loose and let me use it as a playground because it was a really cool store. And every time they would knock off, knock out another floor or at least shut it down, I'd get sad. Like I used to work downtown and I would go just kind of wander through the store on my lunch hour. So to see it reduced to two floors... Yeah, it sucks. It does, because it it was, you know, literally the cornerstone of downtown, the entrance to downtown, if you're coming from the west, and those those incredible store front windows and the way they used to be decorated once upon a time, in particular at Christmas time, but all year round, they had those sort of vignettes yep. for the different departments in the in the store that they would exhibit the different merchandise and and create these little miniature, almost like a a, a still, like a work of art. And uh, when they stopped doing that, that was in my mind 
the beginning of the end for the store. Tim texting us at 204 6868 saying water park. I was going to say, I wasn't looking at the text messages. You can't say water park. <laughs> as, as much as I want a water park downtown or basically anywhere in the city of Winnipeg, uh, that, that that's not the place. You don't think it would work there? I, I just don't know how you would marry water with that limestone construction and all the different things that would need to be done. I think, I think it would be a real challenge. It would be far more expensive to retrofit that building for that purpose than to build something purpose built in the first place. Someone asking a good question here. When was the last time you went to the downtown Bay? And I got to be honest, uh, outside of going to third and bird, Mm -hmm. which I went to the Christmas market last year and I was at the spring market last year. I don't remember the last time I went to the downtown Bay. And that's just partly because I don't, I rarely find myself downtown when I worked downtown, I would go there all the time right? uh, because I didn't work far from there. So when I spend a lot of time downtown, then I would go, like if I lived downtown, I would go to the Bay or if I had, you know, and, and like when we move downtown, when our office moves downtown, then perhaps that'll give me more reason to go to the Bay downtown because we often walk over to the Bay at Polo Park because it's a great store. It is a great they store. great clothes. They often have awesome sales. So yeah, I, have, I would happily go to it when we're downtown. But we got a caller at 204-780-6868. Gail joins us live on the start. Hello there, Gail. What do you think they should do with Hudson's Bay? Well, I'm going to go back about 20 years ago when uh, they were talking about uh, doing the top floor as a casino. So that would be a good bet. Put the, put a casino up there on the top floor. Uh, four of the floors should be condos, and the bottom two floors should be rented out as like uh, retail space. You know, and then the basement still could be. Those people that are doing that, the market, third and bird, yeah, make it like a like a multi-use sort of facility, a multi-use building, yeah, yeah, because the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra used it one year for their new music festival, where That's they right. went down there and played yeah. and put on, uh, by all accounts, a spectacular show. That's a a beautiful building, and I'd hate to see them razz it. Well, I don't think they would because of the historical uh, factor for it, but. It's a gorgeous building. I remember the paddle wheel being up there and going for lunch all the time, and it was it was a wonderful place to go to. Yeah, Gail, it was the epicenter uh, of a lot of people's lives. Uh, maybe not every single day, unless you work there, of course. But it was the epicenter of a lot of trips downtown uh, for uh, my brother and I, with with our Grammy in particular. Great memories. It'd be nice to create something that would create memories for future generations. Thanks for your insight and painting such a great picture. Okay, great. Mackling and McGarry, we're talking about Hudson's Bay Company and how they are looking to close more stores. That could include some flagship stores. We don't know if that's going to include the store downtown, but we're asking you at 204-780-6868, if they were to close that store, what do you think they should do with it? Jerry joins us now on the line. Jerry, what do you think they should do with that store if they were to close it? Well, if they close it, they have a serious problem in the fact that Heritage Winnipeg and the City of Winnipeg Council have basically ruined any redevelopment for the site itself. And that's going to present any development, any redevelopment plans for the site that that will will never happen. That's the biggest problem that that building faces. 
You make a good point on this. Uh, I have to imagine there might be room for negotiation. Don't you imagine in terms of making that building functional again? Because uh, the quickest way for building to uh, basically kill itself is for nobody to use it. Well, that's the biggest problem. And and with the city putting up all these roadblocks uh, to redevelopment, that's why the building will fail or will basically fall into neglect because nobody is willing to pay these exorbitant costs to retrofit a building to standards that don't exist anymore. And that's the biggest problem that they face with that building. I think they call it demolition through neglect. Exactly. All right, Jerry, thank you very much for your feedback. We appreciate it. Greg, there was a text message that jumped out at you that uh, you said, hey, that's a good idea. It is a great idea. You wouldn't be able to use the entire space for this, but uh, look up wework.com. These communal working spaces have become extremely popular across North America. We have a smaller scale one in Winnipeg. Can't think of the name of it off the top of my head, but they're super trendy, and they become these little mini incubators for small business people and entrepreneurs. It gives them an opportunity for common workspace and some opportunities for networking as well. Really cool. We had a couple of people text in saying that it should actually be a meth rehab facility, a state-of-the-art meth crisis center and addiction center. Uh, We have about 30 seconds for Angelica. Angelica, what do you think? Oh, hi. Thank you for taking my call. Because of the proximity to the university, I think it would be really beneficial to hold classes there, and the rest would be like dorms for the kids. I'm not sure, uh, you know, if they're short of space for the students. So if that doesn't work, I'd like to see it as condos, as the beautiful views you would get out of the windows and just the location in itself. Yeah, Angelica, that's a great point. And if they were to turn it into condos or apartments, that would be very coveted, no doubt. And it'd be something that I would certainly consider to be able to come home to that building. Just gorgeous. And right now we want to have an important conversation, Greg, about Lyme disease. Yeah, you know, it's impossible to go to the lake, go to the park, or even out to watch your kids play baseball or soccer and not be concerned about coming home with a tick on you. I know when I let my dog out into the backyard, I I check her to make sure that she hasn't brought uh, ticks inside the house on her being. And Jim Wilson is the president of Canadian Lyme Disease Foundation, and that is probably the ultimate concern for folks when we think about wood ticks and their potential effect on our human health. Jim, thank you for taking some time with us this morning. Why, thank you. So uh, Lyme disease, uh, for those that are unfamiliar, it's been in the spotlight, I would say, uh, you know, certainly for the last several years. Uh, For those that don't know, what is Lyme disease and how does it uh, affect human beings? Uh, Well, it's it's a bacterial infection. Uh, it's uh, uh, the bacteria is called uh, Borrelia, uh, so it's uh, a very um, distantly related to the syphilis bacteria, and can cause very similar type symptoms uh, as, sy- as syphilis. So it can affect pretty well every system of the body. So it can affect the brain, the heart. Uh, the other organs, the the joints, the muscles. Um, so you're you're you can become quite cognitive, cognitively uh, 
disabled with it. It can uh, mimic uh, an Alzheimer's-like state or multiple sclerosis or Parkinsonism, uh, uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia. So it has a a long list of uh, diseases that are often given as labels for it when it turns out to be Lyme disease uh, in the end. Now, I understand in the last decade, cases of Lyme disease have risen quite dramatically in Canada from 144 cases in 2005 to over 2,000 cases in 2017. Any idea why that is? Well, no. We, I mean, they, they're attributing a lot of it to climate change, uh, I suppose, but that doesn't really explain it because uh, Lyme disease has uh, been around for years in these uh, ticks um, in countries with much colder climates than than Canada. So we're not sure exactly. Uh, definitely, the ticks seem to be more hardy uh, than they have been in the past. They're they're able to survive uh, and and multiply in numbers that we just haven't seen before. So it's definitely on, on the rise and. Uh, Year over year, it it just seems to uh, to keep going up in numbers, and and when they report that two thousand uh, plus cases uh, annually now in Canada, um, that number is greatly underreported. In fact, the most current research uh, addressing that uh, published last fall uh, by uh, Dr. Uh, Vet Lloyd and, and Dr. Ralph Hawkins indicates that uh, the current uh, testing algorithm that we're using for diagnosis in Canada is actually missing about uh, 90 to 95% of the cases. So we are greatly underreporting that number. So you could probably multiply that uh, perhaps uh, anywhere from three to tenfold and you'll get somewhere uh, of an ac- more of an accurate number. Jim, that's long been a concern and a complaint that I've heard amongst people that have had folks uh, in their family that have been afflicted with Lyme disease or have had it themselves is just this inability to diagnose it properly. What what are the stumbling blocks there? Is it a test that we aren't using in Canada? Is it an unwillingness to test? What uh, what What do you say? Well, it's, it's a combination of factors. They have guidelines that doctors are, are told to follow. Uh, and sadly, it's that algorithm and the testing uh, that, that is failing Canadians. So, for example, the, the, the ticks that are transmitting Lyme disease are spread randomly in high numbers by our migratory birds. So our, our robins and wrens and finches and, and other migratory birds that we have uh, are moving these ticks around uh, in huge numbers, sort of like uh, WestJet for, for ticks. Um, so it's, it's very difficult to know where an endemic area is uh, because it's constantly changing. But that, that, you have in order for a doctor to make a diagnosis and follow the guidelines, he has to determine that you've been in a known endemic area. Well, we don't know where the endemic area is on a movable illness. So that's that's one huge problem. The other thing is the overemphasis uh, on this uh, bullseye rash. Most people will get no rash 
And if of those that do, uh, only a small percentage of them will actually take that identifiable uh, bullseye form. But that's also part of the algorithm that doctors are to follow. Uh, so they're just the, the the whole process in Canada is not current with the with the science, uh, and also the testing is is woefully inadequate, uh, both in the early and the late stage. Their antibody tests, it's depending on the person's immune system. Uh, it takes uh, four, three to three to six weeks for humans to even develop detectable antibodies. So the testing is is pretty much useless in that all important very early stage. So there's there's a whole re-education and uh, review of the uh, medical algorithm that has to take place in Canada. Uh, there are better tests uh, used in other countries. We've got to start looking at them and validating them here in Canada. Our guest is Jim Wilson, president of the Canadian Lyme Disease Foundation, joining us live on 680 CJOB. So is there a way then for it, for somebody to, if they're experiencing symptoms and the doctors seem to be stymied, is there something that a patient can maybe say, well, what if, what if you, you know, I'm experiencing this symptom, could this be indicative of Lyme disease? Well, they, sh- they should definitely... Uh you know, ch- challenge the the medical system um, if they believe that that is a potential cause. Don't allow the uh, the physician to to just poo poo that suggestion, and and uh, uh, push them at least to do the uh, the uh, provincial test with the full understanding that if it comes back negative, it in no way rules out Lyme disease, uh, and and don't. Um, you can correct your physician if he suggests that, well, you haven't traveled to an area where we know there's Lyme disease. You don't know where there's Lyme disease. It's transplanted randomly. Um, so there are things that if you have the knowledge and you can go to uh, the Canadian Lyme Disease Foundation website and get a lot of good information to arm yourself uh, and it's evidence-based, science-based uh, um, information uh, and arm yourself with that information and go to the doctor and and put the pressure on on the doctor if they don't seem to be fully up to date with their education uh, don't don't be willing to just accept what the doctor is is saying you have to become your own advocate i guess is is the most uh, important message we could get out there and you have to be a, a good advocate for yourself or your children is there a cure for lyme disease well, the uh, in the short term, most people, if you if it's diagnosed early uh, and you get the adequate uh, four to six weeks of uh, antibiotics, um, then it's usually dealt with quite easily. Uh, we're seeing far too many treatment failures in the, the the typical fourteen days that patients are given in Canada in the early stage. That's that's an not an adequate uh, uh, time for treatment. Uh, and, then, and then if treatment fails and it becomes disseminated in the, in the body and, and it goes into late-stage Lyme disease, it, it can become much more difficult to treat. And at that point, it, you may require longer periods of antibiotics, which 
in most cases are successful. Um, but even then we have treatment failures, uh, in, in, uh, a certain, certain percentage of people. Most people will do well with that. Uh, if the treatment is, is long enough and at the right dose and the right antibiotic, it can often be a, an experimentation to see which antibiotic, and that could be dependent on the strain of Lyme disease because we have multiple uh, strains uh, of Borrelia, the bacteria uh, occurring across Canada. Uh, it could be strain-related as to why some are more difficult to treat in, uh, than others. Uh, but uh, in the long run, uh, once it's disseminated in the body, we don't say cured. We say it's it's in remission, and it can go into a very long-term remission. Jim, you've uh, answered uh, our questions thoroughly. You've also created some other questions for us, which means we'll have to have you back again. Thank you so much for your time. It's great to uh, have you on the program again. Uh, thank you very much. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think, and hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on C-J-O-B. Talk soon.